Have you guys noticed how as time passes, we choose different names for children? And sometimes very different, very different names. I didn't understand why this happened for a long time until I got married and my wife and I became pregnant. And uh, at the time, my, well, she was pregnant, but you know, <laughs> I thought it was the right way to say it. Um, at the time, Melissa was a music teacher, and so she had 500 students at the elementary school she taught at. And so I thought it would be great to coming up with a name and easy, <laughs> oh no, farthest thing from the truth, with 500 students, every name I came up with, she would shoot down. I have a student, and they're horrible. No, we can't name her that. And, and it, we finally settled on the name. We found out it was a girl. We settled on the name Lydia. And we, we loved the name from the beginning as soon as we settled on it. But then we needed a middle name. And, and so we searched and thought, and we, we really like the name Marin. It's a Scottish name. Uh, we had friends with, uh, who had a daughter named Marin, and we just loved it. And so one day we're at my, my mom's house, and we're sharing a meal together. And my mom says, so have you guys chosen a name for the baby yet? And kind of delighted, we said, yes, Lydia Marin Reisner. And my mom responded with, Marin? And I responded with, Vernon? <laughs> and then I learned something that I had never, ever knew before. She says, well, I could have given you the other name I chose. And I said, what's that? She said, Sebastian Lee. I don't know what's worse, Vernon or Sebastian Lee. I mean, who knows? What's that? Uh, Steve said Vernon's worse. So thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that, buddy. <laughs> Names are important, though, aren't they? I mean, we're called our name our whole life. And, and did you know, as you go, th go through Scripture, there are a lot of different names for Jesus, lots of different ways he's referred to. And so we're going to, over the next few weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to look at four different names. We find them in the book of Isaiah chapter 9. So if you would, grab a Bible, grab your own or one of the church Bibles there in front of you, page 630, excuse me, 683 in the church Bible. And we're looking at the book of Isaiah, one of the great Old Testament prophets, and what he had to say about Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll begin with verse 1. If you have a smartphone, feel free to open your Bible app if you have one of those, and you can read along as well. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They receive before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when, when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood We will, will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, 
is born, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Great passage of Scripture. We're told here that Jesus is going to come. This one called Emmanuel is going to come, and he'll be born. He'll be given to this land. Now, I wanted you to notice the first part of that. That's why we read the extended portion. Notice how he talks about Zebulun and, and Naphtali and how they've been humbled. Uh, I like to focus on this part of the story, but in order to do so, we have to go back before Zebulun and Naphtali, that land. We, we have to go even before Israel was a nation to fully grasp this. I want you to, to come along with Abraham, the father of the people of Israel. And he, he told, he's told by God to go to a land that God would show him. And, and Abraham obeys this voice. And so when he gets there, God gives him an unconditional three-part promise. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. He says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land for your people, and I will bless the whole world through your descendants, your seed. And even though Abraham is way up in age, he believes God. He just has faith God's going to accomplish this. But you have to realize if he's going to be the father of nations, he would need children. He has no children. And he's an old man. So when Abraham is 100 and his wife is 90, they have a miracle baby, a son. They call him Isaac. Isaac is a name that means laughter. And if you were 90 years old, ladies, and you had a son, you would probably laugh too uh, or cry, one or the other. You would do one or the other. Isaac grows up. He has two boys. He has an older son named Esau and a younger son named Jacob. And Jacob is rotten. His name means usurper or supplanter, and that's exactly what he does. He, he supplants his older brother and ends up through swindling him out of his birthright. So he becomes the oldest child, even though he's the second born. And then later he, he supplants and usurps his brother and he steals a sacred blessing that God meant for the oldest son. He steals it and he gets his father's blessing for himself. And... and and God still is going to be faithful to his promise to Abraham. He's going to make those, that three-part promise come true, and he's going to use Jacob, this swindler, this usurper. He's going to use him to build this nation. But first, he's going to have to correct some of Jacob's flaws. And so he kind of turns the table on Jacob, and, and through a long set of circumstances by which we don't have time to, to go through, he usurps Jacob. He has him supplanted, and God taught him a lesson. And the final exam ended up coming when, when he wrestles in, in a match with the angel of the Lord, Jacob and the angel of the Lord, and it's there that God makes Jacob the man he wants him to be. And Jacob is given a new name. Anybody know what it is? That's right. Israel is the name. Instead of the one who supplants, he becomes the one who wrestled with God. That's what Israel means, the one who wrestled with God. So Jacob, now Israel, he ends up having 12 sons. 
And those 12 and their descendants end up forming the nation that we call Israel. All of the Jewish people come from these folks. And God is true to his promise to Abraham all the way back several generations. He gives them a land, the land we know of Israel. And how is the whole world blessed? Can somebody tell me? How is the whole world blessed through Israel? Jesus. Jesus comes and blesses the whole world. Now, two of those 12 sons of Jacob are Zebulun and Naphtali. Two of them. Their descendants settle in the northern regions of Israel. I've circled them for you and shown them here on a map. They live there for about 600 years. They have good days. They have bad days. Good times, bad times. And then all of a sudden, they're invaded after 600 plus years by an army of Assyrians. And their homeland is resettled by the Assyrian people. And this brings Isaiah's prophecy at its place. Chapter 9, God says, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, they've had such gloomy, dark, they've been under the rock of oppression. They need hope. They need hope. And so God, through Isaiah, is sharing that one is coming who will be named Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. In chapter 7, verse 14 in Isaiah, this Emmanuel is told, he, we're told that he will be born from a virgin. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, we're told that this Emmanuel will come from the house of Jesse. And in Isaiah 11, chapter 2, we're told that God's spirit will rest upon this one called Emmanuel. And here, in chapter 9, where we were reading, it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now put all this together, and clearly Isaiah is talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. And, 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 if you're not aware of this, Isaiah shares all this information 700 years before Jesus is even born. It's incredible. So what we're going to do over the next four weeks, we're going to look at these four names for Jesus. And today we begin with, I think, the hardest of the four, Everlasting Father. You know, we think about Jesus in a lot of ways, but we don't think of him as an everlasting father. Jesus is a son. He has a father, God the Father in heaven. Why would we call him Everlasting Father? Well, as I said, Isaiah is writing this in very scary times. And God wants his people to have hope. He wants them to have hope. He wants them to have something they can cling to. I wonder, are you here this morning? And maybe you've come and you need some hope. You're going through a difficult time. You're struggling. You feel like an oppression has come upon your life. And you need hope today. Well, I hope that you'll receive it as you listen to this message. Israel longed for somebody to come and save the day. They longed to have somebody come and bring them hope. Somebody who would step in and someone who would, who would free them from a Syrian uh, brutal grip. They need somebody. And who did a lot of people usually look for? And They need a strong, mighty king. They've had kings. That's what they're looking for. And in chapter number one in your notes, number one, Jesus is that king. What is a king if you think about it? A king is a father figure for a nation. 
God is the Father, but Jesus will be the flesh and bone person that they can see, that they can touch. So God promises them both, a son and a father figure. I want you to think about Jesus' life. Think about what he did. I mean, Jesus was one who who cared for people. Isn't that what a good, loving father does? He was strong. He was dependable. That's what a father is. He He was firm, and yet he was loving. Sounds like a father. Fathers want their children to know whose they are. He wants them to, the father wants them to know their family identity, that they're not just somebody. They are someone special. You ever hear a father that has said this, maybe in a movie or maybe in real life, you've heard somebody say, now, young man, listen to me. I'm a Smith, and you're a Smith. You come from a long line of Smiths, and we Smiths are true to our word, or something along those lines. Anybody ever hear something like that happen? Yeah, most of us have somewhere along in life. Well, well, that's what Jesus wants us to do. How, how many of us, over the last 2,000 years, Christians have said, you know, I'm a Christian, and I'm linked to a long line of Christians, all the way back to, to Jesus' day. And Christians need to know whose they are and live like it, that's very fatherly information to give to us. John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Those are the words of a husband, but they're also the words of a father, aren't they? I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to go and prepare a place for my wife, for my family. Very fatherly words. One time when when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and he gets word that the rulers in Jerusalem are going to try to take his life. Uh, Antipas wants him dead. And, and Jesus, does he get nervous? Does he go, what? Cower in fear and, and backtrack and go back to Galilee? No. He moves forward just like a dad, like a strong father. And a few hours later, as he comes over the mountain there after Bethany, he, he sees he sees all of Israel, all, excuse me, all of Jerusalem, and he says these words right here. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Now, there's a reference there to hen, but aren't those also very fatherly words? I've come to protect you. I've come to love you, to be your guardian. Jesus is the authority. Jesus is the the loving leader. He's a man of strength and power. He is the king, a father figure for a nation. In the future, the Bible says Jesus will come and rule and reign on planet earth. And what will he be as he sits on the throne of David, hearkening back to Isaiah chapter 9? A king. Sitting on his father's throne, King David's throne, a fatherly role for his people. But Jesus is more than just a king. We see here he's everlasting father, more than just a father figure, everlasting. And number two, Jesus is eternal. He's eternal. There's one coming who is eternal. He has no beginning, no end. He's the always existing one. I want you to think about that for a minute. That kind of blows our mind because everything in our world has a life expectancy. A chair, a person, a car, a house, everything has a... But this is the eternal one. Jesus one time was being questioned by some religious leaders, questioned, and, and, and he said this to them. Look at the screens. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. 
Jesus is talking like he knows Abraham. Like there's this personal relationship. And the religious leaders catch on. And so they say, hey, you're not even 50 years old. Why are you talking like, like you've seen Abraham? And then Jesus says some words that just rock their world. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 58, he says this. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. And they pick up stones to kill him. Why? Because in that statement, Jesus is saying, I'm God. That's why they picked up stones. This was blasphemy. A man was saying that he's God in the flesh, and that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying he's the eternal one. He's the all-existing one from everlasting to everlasting, and that's why they pick up stones because they want to kill him for blasphemy. And so Isaiah refers to Jesus as the everlasting Father. It gives us a glimpse into the identity of Jesus. He's eternal, but he's also God in the flesh. That's hard to wrap our minds around. The whole Trinity thing is kind of difficult. If somebody comes up and says, oh, I figured it out, it's easy. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> they really don't. John chapter 1, verse 1 provides more ammunition for this huge point Jesus is making. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and it goes on to say, and the Word was God. The Word was in the beginning with God, and the Word was God. And then in 14, it says, and the Word became flesh. That which was in the beginning, that was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. In John 14, Jesus is with his disciples, and, and there's this amazing teachable moment. I want you to look at it with me. If you really know me, Jesus says, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me? Philip, even after, after I've been with you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? You want to know what God the Father, you want to know him? You want to know what he's, what he's like? You don't have to look any farther than Jesus himself. He is God in the flesh. Colossians 2.9 supports this. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in bodily form. We're just looking at a few. You could, we could spend a few weeks looking at all the verses that show Jesus as deity. Jesus, a leader, an authority. He's a, he's a savior. He's a king. He's a father figure. Loving, firm, parental, protective toward those he loves. He is the embodiment of God in flesh and bone, and he's wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father. The question today for us is, is he your father? I realize this is sometimes hard to grasp, because we can't fully understand it, but we also can't fully live without it. He left the splendor and beauty of heaven where he had been for all eternity past, and he was willing to be born 
in a manure-failed stable. Think about that. The perfection, the glory of heaven, manure-filled stable for you and me. His bed was a farm animal's feeding trough. And he's the king of the universe. But he came with a purpose to face sin and to face death so that you and I could be forgiven, so that we could be set free, so that we could be brought into the light. It's incredible. There's not another story like it. And it's our story if he's our God. And just like the land of, of Zebulun and Naphtali here in, in Isaiah chapter 9, all of us, were in deep darkness. We're the ones who are under this yoke of slavery all around our neck. That slavery is called sin, and there's no worse rod of oppression than that. And Jesus came to give us hope. He came to, to be our king, our savior, the authority of our lives, setting us free in the light. He came to lead us into eternal life. It's incredible. He came to love. He came to heal us. We need to know that today. Do you know that today for yourself? If you don't, then you need Jesus, the everlasting Father. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, King Jesus, Everlasting Father. It's hard to contemplate all of this, all that you are, but still, Lord, thank you for being Everlasting Father. Lord, may each of us give our heart and our soul to your leadership. May we know your love. May we know your forgiveness. And may we experience your power that can save and change us. May we be more and more yours this Christmas season. As we bow our heads, uh, I would be so wrong if I didn't ask you, is Jesus your Savior? Has he forgiven all your sins? If you have never had that chance to go to him, to seek him for forgiveness, to make him your savior, I pray right now, just take this opportunity. Seek him right now. Pray to him. Just say, Jesus, I'm, I know I'm a sinner. Just tell him that yourself. But tell him I'm willing to turn from my sin the best I can. I need your forgiveness. And then tell him, I believe you died and rose again to secure forgiveness for me. Save me, change me, make me yours so I can live from now on the way you desire for you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.